Good morning, church. My name is Kyle Dingus, and I am so absolutely excited to be here with you all this morning and share a little bit about the hope that we have in Jesus. Mark, worship team, thank you so much for leading us in worship. Uh, Kaya and Tannen, thank you for leading us in communion. That was beautiful. Mark, thank you for that prayer. Uh, it's really an honor to be here with you this morning. So my wife sitting over here, her name's Abby. She's wonderful. She is infinitely better than me. I think historians would unanimously agree that she's one of the best people to have ever lived. So if you get a chance after service, go talk to her because she's absolutely amazing. And here's the good thing. I know she loves me for me because though I was born a dingus, she willingly chose to be a dingus. So I know she's not in it for the money. I know she's not in it for anything else. She loves me for me. But we are really happy to be with you all this morning. But whenever it comes to our relationship, I'd be lying to you if I told you everything started out really smoothly and what you see in the movies, because it was not love at first sight. In fact, whenever Abby first realized what my name was, her first thought was, I feel bad for the woman that has to take that last name. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't starting out great. And fast forward time a little bit, whenever it gets to our senior year of college, and I finally muster up the courage to ask her out on a date, which was a feat for me, her response when I asked her was, well, I guess one date can't hurt. The exact response you want to hear when you ask that question, right? It's like, how can I tell him no without telling him no? But she didn't. We actually went on a date, and it was good. And then we went on a second date, and it was really good. And after that, I was like, man, she's amazing. Like, what are our kids' names going to be type amazing? Like, I was already thinking that. So then I asked her for date number three, and her response was just poison to my soul. She said, Kyle, I'm just not ready for a boyfriend right now. It's just dagger, dagger. That's what it felt like. Because you know what I hear when I hear that, right? Kyle, he's sweet, sweet boy. Let's just be friends. Welcome to the friend zone, Kyle. And I just walked home, and I was devastated. Like, my shoulders sagging, just moping home. And I'm just thinking, like, is it really over? Am I actually in the friend zone? So I have to go back to her and make sure. So I go back to her the next day, and I just ask her, so do you see no future where this can work out? And she said, no, it's not that. I just really am not in the place for a boyfriend right now. So in my mind, I have Dumb and Dumber playing, and I'm like, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> so you're familiar with the parable of the persistent widow, right? I think this stage of my life, we can make a new parable called the parable of the persistent bachelor. Because for this two-month period of me waiting on Abby making a decision about me, I did everything in my power to show her that I was worth her time. So I would, every time I saw her, I would compliment her as much as I could. I would try to spend as much time with her as possible without being, like, creepy. I think I did that. You'd have to ask her, I guess, about that one. But I was really trying to win her over. And this two-month period of me waiting on her was excruciating. Like, that waiting period was so hard. And I would come home and just second-guess myself every time I talked to her. I was like, did I come on too strong? Or maybe I didn't come on strong enough. And I was constantly in this uh, fear and anxiety mode where I was nervous that um, anything I would say might go wrong and, and take a turn for the relationship that I wouldn't want to. And I was also nervous, like, this is my senior year of college. Like, 
I need to make sure I find my future spouse. And there's a lot of other women on this campus that I think are awesome. And what if I'm wasting all of my time pursuing her whenever there's somebody else that God has for me? So like all these different things are going through my mind and I'm praying like, God, please, I really think she could be the one. I think she could be it. Please let this work out. And I don't know if it was divine intervention. I don't know if it was just God wanting to use my story to give hope to other people who are going for others out of their league. But somehow she came to her senses. And uh, the rest is history. But I learned something in that period of waiting. I hate waiting. It is so infuriating to me, and I truly believe that it's a form of suffering. Uh, if you want an example, and I think this is a good example of it, have you all ever heard of the Stanford marshmallow experiment before? There's a picture of it right up here. But what happens is a psychologist essentially sits down a child, has a plate, and puts a marshmallow in front of them. And they say, okay, you can eat this marshmallow right now, or you can wait until I come back into the room and I'll give you two marshmallows. And what happens after this is just poor, like pure torture for the kid. I mean, you can see some of these emotions on the screen. I like that one particularly in the middle. Just that feeling of pure anguish. Like, I want to eat this right now, but if I wait, I know I'm going to get a better reward. And I'd like to wager that all of us are kind of like that. We have that sort of expression on our face when it comes to waiting. By a show of hands, does anybody in here actually like waiting? Okay, good. All of you are real people because I have yet to meet somebody who is like, I just wake up every day and I'm just itching. I'm itching to find places I can wait. I try to leave my house at 5 p.m. so I can get in rush hour and take as long as possible to get to where I want to go. I go to restaurants at peak hours. Oh, an hour and a half wait? That's wonderful. I'll just go sit over here on your comfortable bench until then. Like, nobody does that, right? And if you do, come talk to me after service because I don't believe you exist. But I think something that was very clear to me is that we as people, we don't like waiting. And something that's added to that, adding to us not liking to wait, is the need that we have in our culture for immediate gratification right now. So instead of going to somebody else to ask for help, like we've done for centuries of human history, we can just go to Google and get a billion results in a second. Instead of sitting around tables and taking time to eat meals, we can just stay in our car and get food given to us and we can get it on the go. Instead of going to a store to buy something, we can just go to Amazon and have it shipped to us in a day or two. We want immediate results. And I'm not shaming any of you by giving those examples. Those are all examples from my personal life. Lord knows I love Wendy's. Have you tried that strawberry frosty? It's very good. But what I'm saying is that insistence on having what we want and wanting it now has made waiting that much harder. So waiting in grocery lines, sitting in Nashville's ever-increasing traffic, the DMV, I don't even have to say anything else about that one. You know what I'm talking about. But on a more serious note, some of you maybe have been waiting for something really hard for a really long time. Maybe some of you have been waiting for the right person to come into your life to put an end to your singleness. Maybe you have some medical ailment that you've been praying and waiting for healing in, but it seems like nothing's helping. Maybe you've been trying to get pregnant for the last few years, and it seems like nothing's working. Maybe you're waiting for the right job to come up so you can escape the misery that it feels like you've been living in. Maybe you're waiting on getting done with school because you're tired of people telling you what to read and what to take tests on. 
Maybe you're waiting for a relationship that's really important to you to get better. And oftentimes I feel like that's a family relationship because family wounds are the ones that cut the deepest. And maybe you're waiting on your spouse to change and start becoming the person that you want them to be, the one you envision them to be, or the person that you originally married against. Maybe you're waiting for a loved one that you care about who's serving in the military to make it safely home. Maybe you're waiting and hoping that one day you're finally going to be able to stop committing that one sin that is eating you alive. Maybe you're waiting on someone you love so much to come to know the truth about Jesus. And maybe you're just waiting on some people to come into your life to give you a sense of community because you're tired of feeling so alone. I think all of us, to some extent, right now in our lives, are waiting on something. And if we're not now, we either came out of a season recently or we're about to go into one. And if you feel right now that you're alone in your waiting, and whatever it is, I can almost guarantee you that somebody else in this room is experiencing something similar to you. And if not, I can tell you there's a long list of people in Scripture who have had to wait a long time for a lot of things. Just a short sample size. Sarah had to wait till she was 90 to have a child. David had to wait 15 years after being told he would be king to actually become king. The Israelites had to wait in the wilderness for 40 years before actually getting to the promised land. And it, I mean, the entire world, I guess the Jewish world, is waiting for the Messiah to come. We see it all throughout scripture. And on top of this, God is somebody who waits. I imagine right now, God would love to snap his fingers and put an end to all the sin and suffering and pain and injustice that's in this world. But he is waiting patiently. That's one of the most common things you hear about God in the Bible, that he is patient. He is waiting for as many people to come to know him and know the truth about Jesus as possible before setting everything right. Because I think God truly loves us more than he hates our sin. He does hate our sin, don't get me wrong, but his love far outshadows it. I think the best example that we see in terms of what it's like to sit in waiting is found in Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 18 is where we're going to start spending most of our time. But in Romans 8, Paul is really starting to get into the powerful good news that Jews and Gentiles alike share in. And that news is incredible. That through the Spirit of God, we are children of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. Do we know what that means, church? That means the same way the Father sees Jesus and loves Jesus, he loves us. We are considered royalty. We are kings and queens with Jesus. The fact that God is even allowing that to be a thing is mind-blowing and shows how marvelous he is. But there's a really important tagline in verse 17 of Romans 8. It says, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And as I said earlier, I think waiting can definitely be a form of suffering, but there's something about our waiting and our suffering that is making us more and more like Jesus and helping us share in his glory. And I was really convicted by this a few weeks ago. I was reading a book called A Fellowship of Difference by Scott McKnight. It's a fantastic book, but he has a section in there on suffering that's really good. And in the West, we assume that all of suffering is evil. There's nothing inherently good about suffering. And we do know this, and praise God that this is true, 
that there will be a day where there will be no more pain and no more mourning and no more death. God's going to wipe all of that away. But Scott McKnight, he made this really good point. He said that the connection between true human flourishing and suffering is one of the most important connections that Christians have ever made. And I agree with him because a lot of great things, truly great things can come from suffering. To give you just a couple examples, C.S. Lewis, whenever he was at the peak of his writing ability and some of the best things that he wrote were in the midst of his own personal suffering, whether that's a medical ailment or the loss of a loved one. Another example, one of the times of biggest like exponential explosive growth in church history was also during the time of some of the most persecution the church has ever faced in the early days. A lot of good can come from suffering. As much as we try to avoid it in the West, it has proven to be a very strong catalyst for kingdom growth. And this leaves us with the question, and I think Paul is kind of alluding to this or getting to this in Romans 8, is all of this suffering worth it? And that's where we pick up in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So his answer to that is a resounding yes. It is worth it. It is worth all the suffering. And Paul knows a thing or two about this. If you want to see some of the stuff that Paul experienced in his life, go to 2 Corinthians 11 and read this laundry list of stuff that he went through. I mean, he spent a lot of time in prison. There's a lot of time that you can sit and think and wait in prison. He was pursued by enemies and tortured a bunch of times in his life. He was shipwrecked a couple times. He spent a day and a night just floating in the open sea. Like, that is something from my nightmares. But you have a lot of time to sit with your thoughts in those moments. And he says in the back of his mind, he's always, he always has this mental pressure of making sure the churches are staying afloat. Paul knows a thing or two about waiting and suffering. And though we might hear some of that and we're like, yeah, I want nothing to do with what Paul went through. I think if Paul was here today and I gave him the choice of either experiencing what he went through a hundred lifetimes over for the sake of the glory that's coming or not, he would sign the deal to go through this a hundred times over because he thinks it's worth it. If we keep reading in verse 19, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So who's joining us in this waiting? It's all of creation. Creation is joining us in the waiting. Every fiber of the universe is waiting for this moment for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. If you can imagine like a theater and the audience is all of creation and they're just waiting for the curtain to open up to see who the sons and daughters of God will be. But why? Why is creation so interested or eager about this? Well, let's keep reading. In verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, in verse 20, I don't personally love the translation of frustration here, because that word, the Greek word, is actually matiates, and matiates means something more like emptiness or nothingness. So Paul's Old Testament was the Septuagint, and it was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with that book, uh, one of the most common things you keep seeing come up is everything is meaningless, everything is vanity. And I think Paul is kind of drawing on this whenever he's 
talking about what he is here in Romans 8. What Paul is arguing is that all of creation has been subjected to futility or meaninglessness because of Adam's sin. And this is really what we see all around us. People in our culture today, they are so hopeless. Whenever you have a purely natural view and God is not in the picture and you look at your own life and you look at creation, it's really easy to be hopeless because you don't have much of a purpose besides the thing that you give purpose to, which honestly is not that great of a purpose. Whenever you don't have a strong purpose, it is a, it is a fantastic recipe for having no hope. And that's what we see around us. And so much of our culture, and maybe we find ourselves doing this too. I've been guilty of this too. But we don't like thinking about that hopelessness, so we distract ourselves as much as possible. And that can be drowning your sorrows and drinking. That can be binging Netflix without stopping. That can be spending as much time as possible on your phone. Just anything to avoid sitting with your thoughts, thinking about the frailty of life, to avoid that hopelessness that you might be feeling. And it's all around us. And honestly, given how bad the past few years have been, I would be more shocked if people don't have some sort of crutch or addiction to help get them through the current reality that they're facing than if they do. So this lack of purpose is what creation was ultimately subjected to. And what these verses are saying is that though creation is not guilty of the sin of Adam, it was ultimately dragged down with him. Because God created the world in such a way if you look back at the early chapters of Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve dominion, gave them power over all of creation. And whenever we use that power for evil, for sinful purposes, it actually broke the world. It broke the cosmos. In verse 21, it mentions that creation is in bondage to decay because of it. And science actually agrees with this. If you've heard of the second law of thermodynamics, what that is, is that all of creation is in a perpetual state of breaking down. There's your happy message for today, church. We're all breaking down. But no matter how many anti-aging products we might buy, no matter if Jeff Bezos is spend, spending millions of dollars trying to find a way to reverse aging, which he's actually trying unsuccessfully, we're all breaking down. And in spite of everything, in spite of all of this hopelessness I just talked about, what we see here is creation is clinging to hope. Verse 21 is saying that creation hopes for a day where it will be freed from decay and share in the same freedom and glory that we will. So this is why creation is so eager, going back to that earlier point, because whenever we are freed from our own bondage, creation will be as well. And this is God's plan for the new heaven and new earth. Let's keep reading verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes in already what, or what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. <clears throat> so, all the cosmos, creation, is in waiting in pains of labor. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with labor pains. I, for one, am not personally or intimately familiar with that, for I am not a woman who has given birth. But from talking to mothers that I know about some of the details of what actually happens in that process, which I will spare you of, 
it, it made me feel like I need to go to my mother and apologize for all the wrong things I ever said to her, the times I rolled my eyes, the times I stuffed stuff under my bed and lied and said it was clean, all those times. I honestly think every day should be Mother's Day. Are you with me <laughs> for what mothers have to go through, right? Because what happens in that process is there is so much pain in labor. In the grand scheme of things, the pain does not last very long, but boy is it intense. In that moment, it feels like the pain can last an eternity. So even though the groans are not that long, the groans are very, very intense. And whenever we look at Romans 8 and note who all is groaning here, it's really everything. All creation is groaning. We are groaning inwardly for the resurrection of our bodies. In verse 26, it says the Spirit of God is groaning on our behalf. Really, everything is ultimately groaning that things are not as they should be. I think we're tired of having to bury people that we love and cherish with all of our hearts. And that one's pretty fresh for our family. We're tired of world leaders fighting for more power at the expense of human lives. We're tired of world hunger even being a thing that's leading to so many to die of starvation. We're tired of sex trafficking being a thriving market in the world and adding some more and more brokenness in a sexual ethic. We're tired of young men going into schools and gunning down innocent children for nothing. We're tired of seeing all the racial injustice that's present in this country and elsewhere in the world. We're tired of seeing the significant mental health crisis that's just plaguing everything right now. We're tired of seeing natural disasters come through and just rip apart communities, leaving nothing but devastation and death. We're tired of seeing the elderly being neglected by society. We're tired of seeing families being ripped apart because of selfishness, leaving kids to grow up with no fathers or mothers, and seeing marriages get ripped apart because of infidelity or whatever reason. We're tired of seeing people, regardless of political affiliation or belief system, tear each other down without ever wanting to listen to the other side. We're tired of seeing churches split and divide over really petty issues that can very easily be solved. And we're tired of living in a sin-infested world that ultimately we contribute to every single day. And honestly, church, I think we're just tired of being tired. We are groaning right now as in the pains of childbirth for this suffering to end. We're ready for it. But this metaphor for birth right here is so absolutely perfect. Because the beauty of labor pains is that pregnancy ends. That's why the language of hope is so good here, is that though we suffer and though we grieve through the gift of the Holy Spirit and through the Spirit's reminding, we do not grieve as those with no hope. And this leads us to one of the first main takeaways for today, that hope in Jesus allows us to wait patiently with confidence. Because with this hope, we can better face the hard things that are in front of us because we know the good that's on the other side. Put another way by Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl. He says, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. So that hope or the why behind living 
is what helps people want to get pregnant in the first place. Because the moment that a child is born and a parent's hopes are realized, it makes everything worth it. All the pain that the mother just went through is overshadowed by the hope and the joy that they experience with their child. But our hope right now is not fully realized. We are currently in labor pains and we are groaning for things to be different. Right now we are living in a war of the worlds. We are living with the decay of Adam, but also the restoration of Jesus simultaneously. That's kind of what we see in our own baptism too. We are dying to ourselves and rising to new life. And this phenomenon has been termed the already but not yet, and I think that's a good way to talk about it. But if you read this text that we just read today and you read it closely, you will be able to see <clears throat> that this is all over, the war of the worlds, what has happened and what will happen. Right now, with every act of kindness and love, we get the aroma of heaven. But right now, we also have to deal with the stink of pain and sin and death and suffering. But praise God. Because the present age, as things stand, is about to come to an end. And he is going to make everything right. But oftentimes, it's not until we're on the other side of suffering that we're able to believe, truly believe, that God is going to make everything right. That's why I love the hymn that we sang, Farther Along. Farther Along, we'll know all about it. Farther Along, we'll understand why. And that is a comfort to me to know at some point in the future, I'm going to get some closure. I'm going to get some understanding of why things happen. But right now in life, some of you feel like you may never get an answer why. And honestly, you may not get an answer why for the remainder of your lives. In this long suffering, it's really easy to be angry at God. It's easy to lose sight of hope. And I have been there, and I'm sure many of you have been there too. But I don't know about y'all. But whenever I'm able to see God provide in his timing, I can always see how it's the best timing. And if I can't see it in the moment, I can at least look back and see how what I just went through refined me to make me more like Jesus. And this is really what we see in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That right there is the promise. <clears throat> That's the hope we have. That even though we may not see it in the waiting church, God is working out all things for our good. And he just can't help it because God is just that good of a God. And I imagine this makes Satan furious. Like Satan is coming up with all of these schemes trying to get people to commit evil and to add to suffering in this world. And sometimes I think God just laughs. And he's like, oh, you thought that was going to go bad, didn't you? And then he flips it and turns it for his good. That right there is redemption, and that is at the core of God's character. He is making things good. He is bringing good from evil. And God, that is just a fraction of the goodness of God right there. So church, let us wait patiently and with confidence in our hard periods of waiting with the Lord. Because he has brought us through periods of suffering before, and he's going to do it again. And we know that it's all ultimately going to be for our good, even if we don't see it right now. And remember this, church. God is someone who waits too, and he is going to be waiting with you in that suffering, in that waiting period. God will not let you experience what you're experiencing alone. 
The second point is that hope in Jesus radically transforms lives. So as the world settles for the pursuit of happiness or whatever cliche thing they can find in Hobby Lobby and tack on their wall, whatever it is, pursue hope in Jesus. Because hope in Jesus is so real and just so tangible that it actually changes things. I have seen it in myself, and I have felt it in myself, and I've seen it in other, pap- in other people. For example, whenever I was working at a rehab facility for adolescent boys who were recovering from addiction and trauma, every single day I'd walk in there and I would stare into the eyes of hopelessness. I would look at people who would say something like, you can try whatever treatment you want, but I know I'm ultimately going to die because of this. And it's just tragic, tragic stuff, especially whenever you see how bright of a future these people can have. But I've seen so many instances of people who come to know the truth about Jesus, come into contact with real life-altering hope, and walk into freedom as some of the most strong, sold-out disciples of Jesus that we've ever seen. Through the power of Jesus, through some therapy and a strong support group, these people are walking in freedom. And you may not feel like you can where you're at right now, but I promise you, you can. Just please talk to somebody. And the last thing is that hope enables us to be a hope dealer for a hopeless world. And church, we have an incredible opportunity here because in the world, you're going to bump up against people who are hopeless. You will. And we know why they are hopeless. Because God is not a part of their picture. And you have an incredible opportunity to be a hope dealer to them. A dealer, simply speaking, is someone who buys or sells goods. And hope is a resource or a good that you have an abundance of. And you, help, you can help distribute that to other people. So whenever you talk to the person at the cubicle at work who's going through that nasty divorce, you get to offer hope to that person. Whenever you're at the park playing with your kids and you see that mother who is stressed beyond belief, you have the opportunity to give hope to those people. And I, I just want to say as a quick aside, because <laughs> this is important, Whenever someone is in the the deepest part of their pain, they're in crisis mode, it may not be the best thing to immediately offer a silver lining (laughs) and say, well, things are going to get better, so just just hang in there, it's going to be all right. That may not be very effective. So I think it's important to take after the model of Jesus. Whenever Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead and Mary comes to him, falls at his feet and is weeping, he doesn't say, Mary, don't you understand I'm about to raise him from the dead? Like, you don't need to be crying. No, that's not what our God does. He falls to the ground and weeps with her. God meets us in our pain. He doesn't minimize it. So be with people in their pain, but then after that, you get to offer true life-altering hope. Not some cliche saying, but stuff that actually changes lives. That's the opportunity we have. Instead of being like Adam and dragging down all of humanity with us, we get to be like Jesus and drag down heaven to earth in these moments. So church, let us be a beacon of hope for the world because one day, there won't be any more cancer. There won't be any more pain. There won't be any more suffering. There won't be any more injustice or sin or death because our good God is going to wipe it all out. And he's going to make everything right. So as we groan in our waiting, whether that's for a job, whether that's for a relationship, or whether that's freedom from our pain, or freedom from our sin, whatever it is, let us wait patiently.
Because in Jesus, what's to come is so worth the wait. Let's pray. Lord, waiting is hard. It is challenging for us to want to have power and control over our lives and, and to not see the results that we want immediately. It's challenging to deal with all the suffering and hardship and dealing with the loss of loved ones and all the hard things, especially, that we've been going through in the last few years. And Lord, I feel like we just need to take a collective breath. But Lord, I pray that you give all of us this otherworldly, transformative hope to give us faith in the waiting and trust that you're going to make everything right, even if we can't see it right now even if we feel like we may never see it in our lifetime. Help us to trust that you're making all things good. And Lord, please help us to be a hope dealer for this world. We know that there are so many people today who are just agonizing for someone to care about their life. And Lord, I pray that that is us. I pray that as we go into the community, that we can really just show people and give people the truest, most incredible hope that's found in your son, Christ. And Lord, I pray that you just help us to be a faithful church with the gifts that you've given us so that we can make a radical, radical impact <clears throat> on the community here in Franklin and in the rest of the world. And we pray all this through your glorious son's name who makes all this happen. Amen.